Good morning, everybody. It's been a couple weeks, but it's good. it's good to be back and see uh, see y'all's faces. I love being out here, which is weird because that's what everybody says when they come out to West Campus. It's so good to be out here. I never come here. So but anyway, last week we talked about, or Ken talked about, the lesson was, I never would have dreamed. And we talked about how God's ways are not our ways. And we're going to continue along in that vein a little bit as, as we see how God's going to be at work the rest of the way. We're going to be in chapter 13 through 15 today. So if you have your, your Bibles, you can go ahead and get there. And the title of our lesson is, What a Long, Strange Trip It's Been. Because being a Christian can be a very strange experience. There's nothing like it. There's no, nobody else in the rest of the world can understand what it means to be a Christian and what it means to live like that. Because just like the world, the Christian life is full of twists and turns and ups and downs, complete with unexpected events and unpredictable outcomes. The difference is, though, the lens that we see the world through. It's the lens that we see those twists and turns through and the lens that we see those ups and downs through. So when, when I was in the Army, we never knew where we were going to go for the next deployment. We didn't know what we were going to do, what our mission was going to be. It was, was it going to be Iraq? Was it going to be Afghanistan, Syria? Who knew? I had spent a whole, whole deployment in Kuwait thinking we were going to Syria, and then we never did. The point being that our life is a lot like that. Day to day, even with orders in hand, something could change on a daily basis. From minute to minute to month to month, it doesn't matter. God is always doing something in our lives, and sometimes he'll, he'll change what we're doing. Because the Christian life doesn't come with a roadmap. God expects us, like I, I talked about in week three, to be living expectantly, living in view of our call to be Christians. So let's look at Paul and Barnabas's call. Chapter 13, verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. See, God called Barnabas and Saul to very specific, very special calling. Guys, God does the same thing in our lives as well. It's just not always going to be vocational church planning ministry. Sometimes it's what you're doing right now for a profession. Sometimes it's your family life, what you've been called to be in your family. You know, we've all been called to be men. And from there, it, you know, just pyramids out. In Paul and Barnabas's case, we see that the calling of God doesn't come with directions. 
They didn't know where they were going. They didn't know to whom they were going. They didn't know if they were ever going to come back, which is very reminiscent of the call of Abraham. If you recall, God just told Abraham, go. He said, pack up your stuff and go. Can you imagine how Abraham felt having to go talk to Sarai? Hey, hey, babe, pack up everything, all the servants, all the cows, everything. Put them in the truck. Let's go. That was a fun experience. I was just talking about uh, a little earlier about what my wife thought when I told her we were getting out of the army to go to seminary. That was a fun conversation. She said, you better be sure. (laughs) And here I am. See, God set Paul and Barnabas away apart for the work of God. And he sent them to do the will of God. And we talk, we've been talking about this uh, the whole semester over God's sovereignty and how God's working things out to his glory and honor. But what we want to look at today is, were they effective? And did they accomplish their calling? And will you? Are you going to be willing to have your eyes open, wake up in the morning saying, God, what do you have for me today? What are you doing? Where are you working? God, please open my eyes. And how we're going to do that is, first off, we're going to look at three separate instances in these chapters that we're looking at today. We're going to look at the results. And then we're going to come back and see how they got those results. First off, in chapter 13, verse 49, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Over in chapter 14, verse 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples. Skipping over to 16. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in number daily. So we see they were effective. They had results. The Holy Spirit was active and moving the Holy Spirit is always working around us. Sometimes it's very, very specific. I'm telling you to go here. I'm telling you to go there. This guy needs help. Help this guy. Sometimes it's that general calling, and we're having to see where God's just moving pieces, and we're just being a part of it. Because being called as Christians, we're, we're called to live a life that is focused on bringing God glory and honor. But how did it happen? How did they get those results? Through a series of strange and unexpected events. Guys, we've talked about this before, but as we're reading through Acts, as you're reading through it at home, getting ready for for the next lesson, read through it like you don't know what's coming. Read through it and try to notice the things that that are unusual, things that don't happen in your life, and just point those out. And we're going to talk about a couple of those today. So we're going back to chapter 13, verse 4. And let's see the first part of their journey. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They always went to the Jews first. Paul was a Jew. Barnabas was a Jew. They loved the Jews and they wanted them to see and come to believe in Jesus. And they had John to assist them. 
when they had gone through the whole island of Cyprus, as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus, which means son of Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. That's important. It wasn't very typical that the governor of, a, of anything was calling up Christians at this point to hear what they had to say. But who was this Bar-Jesus guy? Bar-Jesus was an apostate Jew. That means he was ethnically a Jew. He was born a Jew. His parents were Jew, Jewish. But he was practicing something else than was, that was pure Judaism. At best, he was syncretistic. He still identified as a Jew, but he was practicing other things, like being a false prophet and being a magician. At worst, he was full-out rejection of, his Jewish, of the Jewish religion. Either way, he's not believing in the correct God in the correct way. But he was also an advisor to the Roman proconsul. The Roman proconsul was the civil governor of Cyprus, and he was living in Paphos. And like most civil governors, like most kings, like most leaders in the entire world at this time, he had, Sergius Paulus had a spiritual advisor. He had someone standing by his side when he had a hard decision to make, or he had a weird dream like we saw with uh, Pharaoh and different people in Egypt. He saw them, and they would have somebody to try to interpret those things. They would have somebody that could explain the supernatural to them, someone that was an expert in their field. But the key is, with those kind of guys, they provide false advice. You ever hear somebody that's not a believer try to console somebody or try to give counsel Usually it's full of a bunch of hooey. It's, a, it's full of a bunch of stuff that it's like, yeah, you know, I don't think that's right. That's what the, this guy's doing. He thinks he's all wise and learned, but he's giving false advice and he's dispensing demonic counsel. Because anything that refutes the gospel is demonic counsel. Satan will do anything to try to turn somebody away from the gospel, even if it just means changing it. A tiny bit. And what that leads to is a misleading of the governor. Moving on to verse 8. But Elimus the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and whispered sweet nothings in his ear. This is one of those times. Read what... Read what he's going to say here. It's so beautiful. You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness. Starting off good. Full of all deceit and villainy. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Hmm. And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. The man who thought he could see the future now can't see in front of his face. That's irony. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then, then the proconsul believed. When he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. 
Guys, he saw the light up against the darkness. He saw the good up against the bad, the true from the false. And that's how it works in this life. God proved Paul to be the true prophet. And Sergius Paulus got to see that. See, if Paul would have just met the proconsul on the street, he might not have been so receptive. But God was already working in his life. We see that God is continually doing that. He's already working in people's lives. Anytime somebody wants to hear what you have to say about Christ, that's God working in their lives to hear, even if they don't receive it. But God orchestrates this whole scenario so that it's not just, it's not just the words. Sergius Paulus, a Greek pagan, gets to see gets to see, prove that God is the true and real God. But it required that confrontation with falsehood. The light has to be seen up against the darkness. You know, we, in life, we go through the same things that everybody else goes through, like we talked about earlier, the ups and the downs. The difference is there's purpose in our ups and downs. Your, qual- your calling is going to require confrontation because that is the only way the unbelieving world is going to see what it means to be a believer. Anytime we have confrontation, we're like, Ugh. our first reaction is to step back and try to get away from it. But that's not always the case. A lot of times, people have to see the difference to notice the difference. Because we've been called to be like lights in the darkness. I'm going to read this wonderful passage. That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Philippians 2. Men, uh, a lit candle doesn't do any good in a lit room. There's no difference. There's, There's nothing going on. Have you ever... Have you ever wondered why Jesus didn't take you when you became a Christian? It's because he's called you to be a light in the darkness. When a, when a lit candle is in the middle of a pitch black room, it becomes the focal point. And that's the same way with our lives. God's called us to be light where there is no light. Otherwise, they'll never come because God loves people that don't know Jesus. I think we forget that sometimes. God loves those people that hate Jesus. And that's why he left us here. That's why he didn't take us straight to heaven when we came to faith. So that we could come and make more disciples. We're going to move on in our journey. We're going to skip over Iconium because a lot of the same happens as, uh, as Paphos. But we're going to move on to Antioch of Pisidia. Antioch of Pisidia is a different Antioch than Antioch, Syria, which was where Paul and Barnabas were commissioned. That's their sending church. And what happens in Antioch of Pisidia is that Paul and Barnabas have an opportunity to be able to share the gospel to a big synagogue. 
we're going to see a lot of times that Paul and Peter end up having a lot of very similar experiences. And what this, this sermon that he gets to preach after, after reading from the law, which is just reading through the scrolls, he gets to preach directly to Jews, just like Peter did. Just like Peter and the sermon is almost identical to those that Peter had preached in the Sanhedrin and at the temple. But let's see the results. In verse 46, And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying it was necessary for the word of God to be spoken to you first. Like I said, it always went to the Jew first. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And while the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And here's one of those first results that we looked at. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. The word of the Lord wasn't going to spread throughout the whole region if it just was staying in the synagogues. And at this point, after Stephen's martyrdom, we see that people were scattering and they were sharing the gospel and people were becoming believers. But it was still staying localized in the, in the Jewish synagogues amongst the Jews. It was time to go to the Gentiles because the Gentiles were going to spread like wildfire. Paul and Barnabas were receiving a clarity of calling at this point. They've been rejected from the Jews and rejected from the Jews and rejected. And now they were receiving that clarity of calling. And I really don't want you guys to separate yourself from Paul and Barnabas. Yeah, he lived 2,000 years ago and was a, a Jew from Palestine. And yeah, he was, he was different. And he was an apostle. Don't, don't separate yourself from him. See what is similar between his calling and, and your calling. His calling as a, as a Christian right now is getting clarified. He's having a specific mission. And sometimes, guys, the specific missions are going to come at you on a day-to-day -day basis. Sometimes God is going to clarify your calling just for the day. Some guy is going to come up to you at work and be like, man, I have, I'm having a tough day. You know, this, this, and this have happened. And then sometimes if they're coming to you, they want to hear what you have to say. God's giving you a clarity of calling maybe for lunch that day that you need to be there and minister for that guy. Sometimes, like what happened to me, God will change your whole career, change the state you live in. And that's a more of a permanent thing, something that's going to redirect your life forever. This time, they're getting a, just a clarity of calling. And they were getting their directions on the fly. They had their eyes open. Guys, when you wake up in the morning, have your eyes open. All day long, have your eyes open for where God's at work. Because God put you in the place that he put you for a reason. Now we're going to move on to chapter 14. We're going to see what happens to God, or happens to Paul and Lystra. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. Does that sound familiar? Another thing like, uh, another experience like Peter. And he was crippled from birth and never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him, 
And seeing that, his faith, that he had faith to be made well, healed the man. Again, Paul has his eyes open. He's looking for where God's at work. And he heals this man through the power of the Holy Spirit. Never forget that. It's always through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's never the man. And what happens? What's the result? Well, the people in Lystra, they respond, I would say, pretty appropriately. They worship. They're like, I don't know what God it is, but hey, God, praise God. This was a miracle. This was something divine. Something holy has done this. They said, the gods have come down in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Saul they called, Paul they called Hermes. Guys, the world is going to see the supernatural, and they're going to ascribe it to something different, something other than God. They don't see God. They don't, they don't have their eyes open. They don't have the God lenses that the Holy Spirit provides. Now, put yourself in this scene. All right, there's a reason Luke said that they were speaking in their own language, Lyconian. Paul and Barnabas didn't know Lyconian. They knew Greek, they knew um, Hebrew, they knew Aramaic. Maybe Lyconian was just an offshoot that they could maybe kind of understand a little bit. But there's a, there's a reason Luke puts things in the book. Paul and Barnabas are sitting there, they're seeing everybody rejoice and celebrate. Just, just imagine there. But they have no idea what these guys are saying. If you've ever been on a, on a foreign mission trip and you've had to speak through an interpreter, sometimes you get an experience that's kind of similar. You have no idea what people are saying. They're just laughing. It's probably about you. If you're the American, they're laughing about you. All right. But they have no idea what's going on. But then they notice something. See, in the Jewish system of worship, they have this thing called ritual sacrifice. And they're not the only ones. Everyone around the world has some kind of ritual sacrifice. And they see the, the priests of Zeus coming out from the temple. They see some bulls getting brought a little close. And they see some dudes with knives. They're like, maybe they misinterpreted what we had to say. So what happens is they, they have to tell them, Likeness, uh, it's not the gods that come down in the likeness of men. We are also men of like nature as you. If you cut us, we bleed, I swear. And they're yelling, who knows? They're probably throwing their bodies over the, over the bull, like, stop, don't do this. Because it's that big of a deal that God gets glory and not them. They say, we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. They were just men. They're men like you and men like me. Men with faults. But men with the Holy Spirit. And like I said a few weeks ago when I taught, the Holy Spirit hasn't changed. The Holy Spirit is still the same. But guys, following your calling can be misinterpreted by others. As Christians, we have a Christian worldview. We see what's going on in the world and we try to see it through the lens of the Bible. We try to see it through the lens of God's nature and God's character, but the rest of the world doesn't see it that way. The rest of the world is going to misinterpret it 
everything that happens. They see a church this size, they see people coming here, and they think, oh, that's just a, that's just a bunch of people that you know, like to drink coffee and donuts and socialize and network and judge other people. They don't know that we're coming here to worship the one true God. They don't know that there's power in that. There's power in the fellowship. But like, like Paul and Barnabas, the goal is to keep their attention focused on God because the gospel is always the main point. If there's any other point to your life besides the gospel, then that's a false point. Paul and Barnabas always made it about the gospel, no matter what happened in their life. So they prevent the stoning. Then afterwards, they get some visitors. Some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. Guys, these people were fanatics. They followed them over 90 miles on foot to, to Lystra. And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Don't overlook this. We read this, we're like, yeah, of course, stone got, Paul got stoned. Not a big deal. And not the Colorado kind. Like they, they get, stoning was meant to kill you. All right, it wasn't like uh, they had little little pebbles and they were they were just like ah take that ah in your eye, no, that that's not what what stoning was. It was big rocks to your face to break your skull, and to kill you. Don't overlook things in the Bible when you're reading through it. Read through it critically, and then see the results. This instance of stoning becomes one of the, the cornerstones for Paul, one of the, the chief ways that he understands that he is in the service of God. It's a weakness that he boasts in because he knows that there's no way he could survive if it weren't for God and God's plan. And his calling gets confirmed over and over again. And I want to read this before I'm going to have to take a drink because this is going to be good. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is this daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who wants to sign up for Paul's life? God had a purpose in all of this. You want to know who had some strong faith? It was Paul. Because he got to see God at work. Fortunately, this wasn't the, uh, the outcome. This wasn't the results. These were just the bumps along the way. God used these things to get Paul where he needed to be. God used these things to strengthen the man that he needed Paul to be. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up, 
and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas and Derby, to Derby. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra. Like I said, stoning big rocks to the head. How did he raise up? How did he get up, go back into the city, which by this time, the hooligans, they had had their soccer match and they were, they were on their way. How did he get up? Well, God supernaturally preserved him. And it wasn't just getting up. He got up, went back to town, and then went on to Derby, walking to Derby and preaching the gospel there. Immediately. There's no just recovering from a stoning. Like people around the world today are still being stoned. They're not just getting up and going on back to work the next day. But we see that God had not abandoned Paul. He was actually preparing him. Guys, the storms in our lives, a lot of times, are there so that God can prepare us. When we go through, when we go through hardship, when we go through confrontation, and we make it out on the other side and we see how God was glorified, that strengthens our faith. And that galvanizes us for the task going forward. That's what, Paul, uh, that's what God was doing with Paul. He was strengthening him because he had bigger and he had greater tasks. And that he knew that if Paul made it through and was still able to keep on going by the power of the Holy Spirit, he was going to be one tough warrior for the Lord. And he was also fulfilling a promise that Jesus had made to a man named Ananias upon Saul's conversion. But the Lord said to him, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Do you remember that from chapter 9? How was Paul the man, the little nobody Pharisee from Palestine, how was he going to take the word to Gentiles, pagan Gentiles around the known world. Better yet, how was he going to be ready to speak before kings? He speaks to governor after governor after governor. He speaks to ruler and leader and ruler and leader after leader. At the end of Acts, he's in Rome getting ready to talk to Caesar. And Caesar wasn't just the leader of the known world. He was the iron-fisted ruler of the entire world. And Paul was in care to, be before, to go and speak before him. He was going to share the gospel with the ruler of the known world. How did God get him there? How did God prepare him for that? I tell you what, after that litany of suffering along the way where he still see, saw God's faithfulness and God's provision and God's sustenance, that he knew that he could do anything if it involved sharing the gospel and bringing God to ultimate glory. From Lystra, he moves on and makes that return trip that I started to read about earlier. And he goes back through all the churches that he had just planted, 
giving them encouragement and hope. And then he gets back to Antioch of Syria. And what he does is, is great. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the uh, door of faith to the Gentiles. Men, this is why we have church. This is why we get together. It's to share that all that God has done for us so that we can be encouraged and be strengthened in our faith. That's why we sit at the same table every semester at Band of Brothers, so that for years and years, we can see the prayers, see prayers being answered, so we can see how we've been able to minister to one another, and we can have our faith strengthened and encouraged. Even this morning, talking to a guy, I was encouraged just to see how God has worked through the Holy Spirit in his life bringing some sort of restoration between him and his brother. Only God can do those sorts of things, and I would never see it if I didn't come to this place and talk with these people. Guys, that's why we meet together as a church, to encourage one another, to strengthen one another in the faith, because we are siloed. And from here... We get a big but. Chapter 15. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. This is at, at, at their home church. Some people are coming in. They came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. This is the bane of Paul's existence for his entire ministry. Somebody trying to add to the gospel. Somebody saying something different than what is pure and right and good. This is Paul's whole calling, and this is an affront to his calling to share the gospel. This is an affront to your calling. Because how a man is saved is the crux of the matter. If you get this wrong, your calling doesn't matter. If you get this wrong either by belief or by transmission, you don't really have a calling. Guys, we have, to under, we have to understand what the true and pure gospel is so we can believe it rightly and so that we can tell others accurately. So we're going to walk through that today. But before... I want to show you in chapter 16. I want to steal some of Ken's thunder and see what a man has to say. Sir, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. But like all things in Christianity, we have to define terms because what does believe mean? What does faith mean? What does trust mean? Believe what? definition of believe is to think to be true or to be persuaded of. These are the things that you need to believe, the things that you have to understand. What you have in your handout is essentially the same thing. What you have in your handout is a, a screenshot from the church website. So if you leave today and you, you forget your handout, you leave it somewhere, I find it later with all your notes on it, you know, you can find it on our church website. First off, you have to believe that you are a sinner. 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all heard this before. Guys, the all-powerful and holy God is completely other and separate than us. Completely other than us. Because we can't live to the same perfection that God is and God requires. You have to admit that first. That's the first step of repentance, is knowing that you need repentance. You have to understand that your sinfulness is terminal, for the wages of sin is death. In the garden, there were two major trees, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. Adam and Eve picked the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And from then on, the penalty has been death. They were cast out of the garden, condemned to die. That's us before Christ. Three, Jesus died so you live. You have to believe that the God-man lived a perfect life and that he rose again, conquering death, conquering sin. If you don't believe in the resurrection, because there are a lot of people that say, I just can't believe that, then you don't believe Christianly. He had to die to pay the price, and only he could do it. For while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What love and mercy that God has on us. Number four, the gift of salvation is received and not earned. For it is by grace you are saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Guys, God loves you so much that he became, that he sent Jesus, become the God-man. He degraded himself, humiliated himself by making himself a finite being. To save us, people that don't deserve it at all. To give you and me a calling that is worthwhile, that is valuable, and that is the only way to be right with him. Guys, I want to challenge you. Can you articulate this to somebody that asks you? If you can't, I just want to encourage you. Read it a hundred times. Say it out loud to nobody in your truck or in your car. Get it down and get it down right because everybody around you is changing it just a little bit. They're saying that you have to earn it. They're saying that it's some other way. They're saying that something wasn't necessary. So here's your questions. Around the table, have someone, someone read Romans 10, 9 through 10. What does this passage tell us is necessary for salvation? In what ways do we add to the gospel or dumb it down? Share what you think your calling from God might be. What has he set you apart to do? What has he set you apart to do? Individually. Are you doing it? If not, why not? And lastly, God's calling doesn't come with step-by-step instructions. Why does this bother us and keep us from stepping out? What are we so afraid of? Why don't we like living this way? Let's pray. God, thank you for today. Thank you for your word and for giving us uh, 
a glimpse into your character and your goodness. Thank you for your grace and mercy for allowing us salvation uh, through you alone. And we love you and we trust you and we ask that you would open our eyes this morning to see where you're at work. And God, I pray that you would just bless the conversation around the table. In your name, amen. Have fun, guys.